This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Sklina. And I'm your host, Matt Sklina. And Matt, I'm super excited for today's guest. We've got Ian Lee. He's associate professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. Yeah, you know what? We asked Ian on basically to talk about inflation. What's right. going on right now? What are the risks in uh, the Canadian economy, but the Canadian housing market, especially inflation, interest rates, uh, this is an interesting, interesting conversation. Well, usually when people say, you know, we're moving into an inflationary period, it means hard assets uh, kind of win the day, right? That's right. So uh, real estate is often popular. You know, you don't want to have money on hand. You don't want to have, it's a bad cash time. Cash is trash, they say. Yeah, it's a bad time to have stacks of bills <laughs> under your mattress. That's right. Uh, but, but this is a little bit more complicated. This, this is complicated. Because basically, I think the counteracting force, of course, is, is interest rates. And, uh, and we won't say the numbers, but Ian is projecting interest rates within five years, uh, not looking like they do today. Yeah. Yeah. There's exactly. a teaser for you. Well, and here's the thing too. We talk about the Canadian real estate market in general. Uh, we've got some forecasting. He's got a very interesting theory on why prices remain stable in, in Canada. Yeah. Um, Really it involves really, the limousine socialist class. Yeah, it's it's a very well that <laughs> champagne socialist that combined with some other factors. But it's it's this is just a fascinating conversation. It I'm, is. I'm a, super it, excited. It's a great it's a great conversation for sure. So stay tuned for our conversation with Ian Lee. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to that, Adam, you just went down a rabbit hole. I did uh, of Kevin, Kevin Costner, Costner movies, I, I, and uh, <laughs> I think the conclusion was. 
hasn't done very many good ones. No, you know what the thing is is so I we needed a new show. I feel like uh, my wife and I, as I've probably said on this program before, we we disagree on television almost to the point where we just search through Netflix for an hour and then go to bed without uh, yeah. watching anything. Oh uh, yeah, that's um, sounds familiar. That's, yeah. So, but here's the thing: we she got a recommendation from someone at work for. A new Kevin Costner joint. <laughs> right. I actually was re- referred this show as well. Oh, okay. By yeah. Friends. So yeah. the the show is called Yellowstone. Right. So it's like uh, they're it basically on a ranch in Montana. But the interesting thing about it, uh, it's really a real estate show. It's it's kind of like it's it. Covers, Keep in mind, you've only. I, I'm very early in. Yeah. I'm in season halfway one. through the first. I'm se- I'm se- <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got through the opening credits. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but I'm I'm early into the the first season. But so far, the themes are the same themes that play out on this podcast. So if you like this podcast, you might like this show. Yeah, well, it's about what uh, the the gentrification, gentrif- development, development, yeah, land, land, politics, nimbyism. Power. It's it's all in there. It's a it's great show, unpacked. and it kind of it's kind of like a western with some Sopranos and Succession in there. Uh, yeah, it's it's a great show. Yeah, it's a fantastic. It may show, be one it, of the best things Kevin Costner ever did. Well, next to Field the Dreams, and next to the Bodyguard. <laughs> the Bodyguard. Uh, I slept on that one, but you know yeah. what the thing is 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 that Kevin Costner is a pretty cool guy. Like he's always a cowboy, a baseball player, or like just you know generally who he's a, like a, in the music world. He's John Cougar Mellencamp. Is he? He's not I Bruce he, Springsteen. Uh, Oh, I don't know. He's, if he's not, that cool. He's, he's John Cougar Mellencamp. I don't know. I don't know if John Cougar Mellencamp still goes by John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> really? He must though. No, it's John Mellencamp. No, is it John Mellencamp? Yeah, he lost Cougar. Did he? <laughs> wow. Wow, that's yeah, a lot of new stuff coming on. This today. is I, I feel like this if we if we don't stop now, we're gonna get on this is going towards Chris Gaines <laughs> somehow. So let's uh let's let's keep moving forward. But uh, Matt, what do we have before our conversation with Ian Lee? Okay, we have a few things. One is we are sponsored this week by Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, the best brokerage in town. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody looking to make a change. Head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. That is oakland.com slash join, VRP2020. You'll meet Michael Morgan and the gang, and you'll get a huge incentive for uh, typing in VRP2020. It is huge. You don't want to miss that. And what else do we have? The listing incentive. Yeah, the listing incentive. If you want to sell your home for top dollar in the shortest amount of time and you want to work with us, Definitely get in touch. We've got a huge incentive lasting just till the end of spring here. Also, if you have a family or friend that you want to refer to the Scalina brothers, we would be happy to work with them. And we have an incentive for you for making the introduction. So feel free to get in touch, Matt. And without further ado, why don't we cut to our interview today? Because we go a little bit long on this one, but I'm I'm going to just warn you. It is info-packed and uh, you're going to be better for it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is Ian Lee, Associate Professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. Enjoy. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Professor Ian Lee, Associate Professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. How are you doing, Ian? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Ian, for taking the time today to speak with us. Uh, maybe can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've been in the Sprott School for about 30 years, 32 years, uh, but I was, um, before I became a professor, I was uh, 10 years 
in uh, financial services and banking. This was in the 1970s and early 1980s. I was a lender. Not I wasn't on the deposit side or the administrator side. I lent millions and millions of dollars in uh, consumer loans, consolidation loans, mortgage loans, demand loans, and commercial loans eventually because I worked in different positions. But I was a branch manager with AFCO Finance for four years, and then I went into the Bank of Montreal main office branch. It was the fourth largest branch of the Bank of Montreal in Ottawa where I was a loan officer, then a loan consumer loan manager, then mortgage manager, then commercial credit officer. So I I worked in all aspects of credit and collections, and I lent literally millions of dollars in uh, mortgages uh, in uh, Ottawa and eastern Ontario. And uh, a developer was a customer of mine, or of the bank at the time, uh, Mastercraft Construction, that built um, middle-income, modest, not high-end, but middle-income uh, housing at that time in the 70s and early 80s. So I'm, I've, I had a lot of experience in the uh, in the real estate uh, industry. Right, and and just out of curiosity, what made you move to academia? Sure, I was getting promoted. I was very young. I was in my twenties. I started when I was, I think, twenty years old, and uh, and uh, I was getting promoted uh, literally about once a year, which was very rapid in those days. Banks were very conservative institutions. You didn't get promoted that quickly, but I was doing very very well, and I was really getting good numbers and. Um, you know, you're graded on, you know, how much business you put out and your delinquency ratio and that sort of thing. And, and then they called me in one day and uh, they uh, said, congratulations, you know, you're doing phenomenally. We're very pleased with you. We've got great news. You're being promoted to First Canadian Place in downtown Toronto. And I looked at them and I said, you have got to be kidding. And uh, they looked at me in shock and said, well, what's wrong with that? that that's head office. That, that's, you know, they didn't say the Holy Grail, but I said, well, going to Toronto and living there is a fate worse than death. Um, <laughs> I actually said that. And uh, to be, to, the bank was very good. They did not fire you if you turned down a promotion, but you were red-circled was the sl- slang phrase. That is to say, you knew you could never get another promotion. Your, your career was frozen. And I had done my, I was enrolled for 10 years part-time while I was working full-time doing my undergraduate degree. And it just so happened when this all happened was that very spring I was graduating Finally, after 10 years, going to school at night with my undergrad degree, and so I immediately applied for a master's. I was single, had no commitments, and uh, so I applied for a master's, and I was accepted that fall, and then I left the bank. And uh, I left on very good terms, but um, I I wasn't willing to go to Toronto, and uh, I'm one of those people, one of those Canadians, of which there are many who uh, don't believe that Toronto is the center of the universe and don't believe that Toronto was the be-all and the end-all. I didn't believe it 40-odd years ago, and I don't believe it today. And and it's worth noting, it looks like you basically started your post-secondary education at Carleton, and you've been there ever since. So you're kind of Ottawa born and bred. Yes, you're right. Uh, I I didn't want to leave because, well, I was doing my degree there, and uh, my family were there, still are, and uh, I had uh, roots here. And uh, so I uh, uh, got excited, and I wanted to do a master's degree in public policy. Um, I felt I knew more than any business school professor did about business, and I don't mean that arrogantly, because I had superb training when I was at AFCO and then at the Bank of Montreal. Just superb training. Excellent training. And, um, and I thought, why would I want to go to, into a business school to do a master's degree when I know more than they do? Uh, <laughs> because, uh, uh, and so, but I was... I was in Ottawa. I was in main office branch. That may not mean anything to people in Vancouver, but the main office branch of the Bank of Montreal was literally 100 feet, like 50, 70 meters from the west block of Parliament Hill. 
Parliament Hill was just across the street. The Bank of Montreal was on Wellington, Sparks, and O'Connor. And then when I was being told I had to go to Toronto, and it wasn't just a mild uh, uh, prejudice against Toronto. I had friends who'd actually been promoted already and gone ahead of me. And I would ask them, what's it like? And I said, how, how, you know, I was 25 minutes from downtown Ottawa from my house to my job, which I thought was extremely long. I thought that was outrageous, you know, spending 25 minutes to get to work. And I had friends who were going there and they said, well, you know, we bought a house out in Pickering. And it, I said, okay, be honest with me. For the time you walk out the door to the time you sit down in your desk at First Canadian Place in downtown Toronto on Bay Street, how long? Well, it's about two hours. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Two hours to get to work? Like, this is nuts. This is crazy. And then it takes two hours to get back home. That's four hours a day. And I think 25 minutes is too long. So, and, and, but, you know, they didn't pay. In those days, bankers were, you know, we were okay. But we sure certainly were not well, highly paid. And we couldn't afford to live downtown even then. Right. We had to go to the, the, the these new track, suburban tracks out in the burbs. And Toronto was out in Pickering and around there. And uh, and in Ottawa, it was way out, you know, at Hunt Club and, and the parts that are, that are you know, on the edges. And uh, I just wasn't prepared to go there. And basically, uh, the reduction in my standard of living. They were going to give me, you know, like a $5,000 pay raise. But my cost of living to live in Toronto was going to probably go up by 30 or 40 or 50%. So I didn't see the... Um, the advantage or the benefit. That's why I said no. Fair enough. But it does sound like you, you've been on the front lines of another real estate boom. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. By the sounds of things. Has the the current, and I'd say last couple of months, but maybe even longer, the, the kind of COVID real estate boom surprised you? Um, I don't want to t- tell you I'm brilliant and prescient and all that stuff. I, at the beginning, I wasn't sure where it was going to go. I was adamant it wasn't going to go down. There were some people saying, oh, there's going to be a crash, you know, and I said, no, no, there's not going to be a crash. Um, I've never witnessed a crash in real estate. If we define a crash, you have to use our, you know, define our terms. If you define a crash, and some people do, many people do, I think, of a decline in 20% in market values. I've never seen one in Ottawa. Um, I've seen periods where the market went absolutely flatline. Right after I bought my house in 1988 in the Glebe, uh, the market just went absolutely flatline for about six years. It didn't. Budge, I mean, not even a dollar. And that's how the market, I've argued, in Canada has historically dealt with overshooting because markets overshoot. Markets undershoot, markets overshoot. They're not perfect instruments with price discovery. Sorry for the jargon, the academic terms, but I, I believe in these terms. I think they're meaningful. And uh, markets sometimes overshoot, and then the market adjusts. And uh, historically in Canada, um, the market is adjusted uh, by going flatline for a period of time, for months or couple of years. Um, and uh, uh, although in Toronto, I think it was in the early 90s, there was a decline there, but it was regional only, not national. And I think it was about a 15% decline. But it's very rare to have it. And I have a theory, and I'll just give it out, get it out there right away to you very quickly. Um, and as I've already said to you, I do not consult to anybody. I have no financial interest other than my own house, which I've lived in for 32 years, and I have no intention of selling. I don't have any financial interest to anybody in real estate or brokers or banks or whatsoever. But I've, I've argued uh, in media, uh, I've argued to my students for a very long time, that real estate values will go up steadily in Canada for one simple reason. And it's not magic. It's called human being growth or population growth. It's called demography. If the absolute population 
is growing year after year after year after year as Canada and the United States have done. In other words, there's always more people in front than behind. Real estate values will increase over time is my theory. If you have the opposite situation, which is not impossible, where the pop, the absolute numbers of people in that unit, whatever you're measuring, whether it's a city or a region or a country, if the absolute numbers of people are declining, then you will see long-term declines in real estate values. You're seeing this in Japan right now. Japan is depopulating. Mm -hmm. Every demographer has noted they're going to go from about 130 million people to about 100 million people. So that means there's going to be empty houses because there aren't enough buyers coming along, younger buyers, to buy from the older buyers. And, and it happened in Detroit. I've studied Detroit. It went from 2 million people in the peak back in the 50s to population today is less than half a million. The, the city shrunk by a million and a half people. Where, and, and so when you have that situation, you will have long-term permanent declines. It's a function of supply and demand. In Canada, we're bringing in one new Ottawa every three years. Ottawa is a million people. I'm not talking CMA Ottawa Gatineau, because Gatineau is on the Quebec side. It's part of Ottawa, but it's on the Quebec side. That's 1.5 million. But if you just look at the city of Ottawa, we're 1 million people. And every three years, we're bringing, we're bringing in about a third of a million new Canadians every year. So if you bring in a million people every three years and drop it into Canada, that's going to create a demand for more and more and more housing year after year after year, which is exactly what's been happening, going all the way back to the formation and the origins of Canada. Right. And now the Liberal government is talking about increasing that from 330 or thereabouts, post-pandemic, they're talking going to 450 or 500,000. So that's a million and a half a, a, uh, every three years being dropped into Canada, and that's going to guarantee increased uh, demand, absolute demand increase for housing, which is why I've been so extremely critical. I was on Amanda Lang BNN this afternoon at 115, and I said the explosion in house prices has been socially engineered by three levels of government. In two instances, it was deliberate. One instance, it was in a, it was inadvertent. I'll unpack that very quickly. At the, at the national level, the Bank of Canada has driven down interest rates to an unprecedented low level. They've never been this low. And I've looked up the interest rates because the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve, and the Bank of England have actually published research on the average rate of interest going all the way back. The, the Brits did it back to 1500 The Federal Reserve did it back to, I think it was 1700 the bank cat has gone back to about uh, 100 years. They've never been this low. Now, they did it for macroeconomic policy reasons. We understand, I understand that. We all understand that. But that induced consumers, buyers, to go into the market. So that really gave a jolt to uh, future buyers or would-be buyers, uh, the unprecedented low interest rates. The second uh, driver was uh, provincial governments across Canada uh, either legislating rent controls or threatening to impose rent controls, which sent strong market signals to any investor that was thinking or contemplating of investing in rental housing, saying, look, don't go and invest in rental housing because you're not going to get your money back. You won't get your, your, your full return on your investment. And, this is, and, and so I argue that this has created shortages of rental housing, and there's Tons of economic studies, I assure you. I've reviewed them. Tons in both Canada and the States, going back many years, showing that rent controls are destructive 
of rental accommodation. Right. And that created shortages, which motivates people to flip from the rental market into the home ownership market. And then the third driver, which is the worst of all, and I've been very critical in the media uh, on this point, uh, are the municipal councillors in the GTA, Vancouver, and now the city of Ottawa, imposing very, very strict or, or tough, stringent uh, restrictions on growth uh, because of the um, what is called urban sprawl. And I've argued repeatedly, I said this before the city council, I testified before city council uh, economic development committee only a month ago and earlier, I've testified three times in the last six months. I said, this is the pejorative term that is used by people in the wealthiest postal codes in Canada, such as the Glebe and the beaches in Toronto. It's a pejorative term, it's code term to describe our young people and our immigrants who want to go to the suburbs to find affordable housing. And so we've demonized them by calling it urban sprawl. And we have deliberately socially engineered shortages knowing, so there's no uh, misunderstanding here. The councillors know that the population is increasing. City of Ottawa Council had the demographic report from city staff forecasting using StatsCan hard data and forecasts and other organizations. And everybody accepted the forecast that in 30 years, by 2050, the city of Ottawa will grow from 1 million to 1.5 million people. And they accepted it. The councillors accepted that forecast. Notwithstanding, they know the city is going to grow by 50%. They passed a new growth plan that severely limited the development of new property, new land, new suburbs on the edges of the city. And, and I was extremely critical. I said, you know, we've been talking in Canada for the last six months to 12 months about structural racism. I said, this is structural racism. 70% of our immigrants are non-Caucasian. And this is hurting, very severely, seriously hurting our young people and new Canadians or immigrants who come to Canada because the deliberate socially engineered shortage of land through the growth, the, uh, the official plan, is creating shortages and it's driving up the values of the existing properties. And the biggest beneficiaries are the people that live in the most privileged and wealthiest postal codes in Canada, places like the Glebe, where I live, by the way, mm -hmm. and in the beaches and in Shaughnessy. So these are the people, and I know from my own city, the people that are most strongly in favor of the limitations on the growth and expansion of the city boundaries are the people in the wealthiest postal codes. So I've said repeatedly, and it makes me very unpopular, as you can imagine, I've said, follow the data, follow the money, ask yourself, who is supporting these restrictions on expanding the boundary? And when we discover it's people over what, and I testified before, I mean, my goodness, there were 350 witnesses over a period of three weeks on the official, uh, the, 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 debating the official boundary of the city of Ottawa over the last six months. And overwhelmingly, they were from the urban core, from the most privileged neighborhoods, the, and these are the neighborhoods with the highest incomes, according to StatsCan, when you look at the demographic data, and they're the, with the wealthiest homes. And so I said, you know, these are people who say they're committed to social justice, and yet they're supporting policies that are enriching themselves 
and I used that word on, on talk radio here in Ottawa repeatedly, I said, we in the wealthiest postal codes in the downtown and the urban core in these very privileged neighborhoods are supporting policies that are enriching ourselves at the expense of young people and immigrants who want to go to the burbs to buy, uh, to buy affordable housing, to obtain affordable housing. As you can imagine, this uh, makes some people very, very angry. Uh, but all I'm doing is speaking truth to power because these, the data is there. These are the wealthiest postal codes, the Glebes and the Rockcliffs and the New Edinburghs and Ottawa, uh, Alta Vista, and other very high-income neighborhoods with very high-value properties. And, and it's very it, – everything I say can be validated. It can be mm-hmm. tested and examined and scrutinized. And I said it again on Amanda Lang today, and she agreed with me on BNN. You can go look up the tape. And she said, well, this is the dark and dirty secret, is that the people in the most privileged neighborhoods are supporting restrictions on uh, expanding the urban boundary, and they're the beneficiaries. I said, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And um, so the, uh, I'm not, uh, I supported OSFI today, and I said it, it's, it's far preferable to a, to a, a capital gains tax on principal residence. Um, uh, and I fully acknowledge that I, I would benefit, although I'm not going to sell my house. I'm giving it to my children. Right. Um, uh, but they would, pay the, they would have to pay the tax if there was such a tax. But my argument is not that. My argument is I'm, I'm not aware of any study from anybody that has put forward a, a, a serious intellectual economic argument that a capital gains tax on principal residence will lead to an explosion in new housing to support the shortage <laughs> of housing. Yeah. That makes sense. So I've argued that if we want to, what OSFI did today, I mean, the real estate industry may not like it, but I said, given that there's huge pressures right now, two banks have come out calling for a capital gains tax, and there's been op-eds, I'm sure you're watching it, and they, both the Globe and Mail report on business, the Globe and Mail itself, and the Financial Post and the National Post, and there's a surprising number of people putting op-eds, uh, authoring op-eds, arguing for capital gains tax. And I argued that today's, uh, yesterday's decision by the OSFI to tighten the restrictions to a de facto increase the income needed to qualify for a mortgage is far superior to a capital gains tax. Although I argued that is not going to be the solution to produce more housing. That's only going to deal with the immediate sense of panic amongst uh, pundits and uh, policymakers that there's a, a quote crisis end crisis end quote, um, uh, and so that that's a stopgap measure. The longer term solution has to be to uh, publicize what these councillors are doing in Vancouver and Toronto and Ottawa and other cities where they are trying to uh, are passing very restrictive policies that benefit themselves and harm young people. And, and immigrants. And I think the more that can be talked about and discussed and debated uh, across the country, the more they will feel the heat um, uh, for being having the light turned on them. Right. Well, and, and we've seen, you know, we've had a number of, I, I feel like the, the OSFI increase, basically an increase to the stress test, right? Um, yes, yes, yes. We've witnessed, especially here in British Columbia over the last five, six years, uh, a number of measures to try and dampen demand uh, and what yes. it, what it's led to i think in a in 
uh, we agree with you, I think, here, um, yeah. is that what we've seen here in Vancouver is that, you know, a dampening of demand actually leads to less housing being built. And then yeah. we're in situations like we are today where uh, demand ramps up and there's even less housing to go around. So it does yeah. seem like it's kind of a stopgap measure that, that might actually blow up in our faces collectively. You know, one thing that struck me about what you were saying was that real estate markets in Canada generally don't have the deep declines, the crashes, um, right. but kind of flatline. Based on what you've seen, if we're thinking kind of one, three, five years out, 10 years out, and we're looking at a, a really hot real estate market here where I you're talking where about you're going. overshooting, want, yeah. Yeah, I want to put it on the, on, 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 put it very clearly. I was not to this moment making a forecast of the future. I no. was very carefully saying for your listeners, historically in our country, and I believe me, I've looked at this because I love looking at stats. That's what I do all day long. That's the beauty of being a tenured professor. I can sit there and wander all day long when I'm not teaching and look at right, StatScan right. data and historical data going back. And the long-term value of houses, whether you include the inflation or take out the inflation, house prices have gone up over time. And I'm talking now, let's use since the Second World War. Well, there should be no surprise. Some people say, well, house prices can't keep going up. And my answer is, as long as we, and I do strongly support immigration, by the way, we desperately need more people because we're depopulating otherwise. The birth rate is an A, it's below 2.2, it's at 1.6. And if we want to maintain our standard of living, we need immigration. Where I'm going with this is, is that so long as we agree, there's a consensus in Canada, we need immigration. And I think there is such a consensus, then we must, the corollary of that is that we must build more houses. And that's where uh, my good progressive friends and the wealthiest postal codes of Canada and I set apart. Now, to your question, I wasn't ducking it. Is there going to be uh, some kind of a, quote, correction going forward. Uh, it's really difficult to say. Um, I do not believe, uh, and I've been making this argument for literally five years or 10 years, I've testified before the House of Commons Finance Com Committee multiple times. For those people who claim that we're on the edge of a crash, you know, we're all going to go bankrupt, we're, you know, because of our indebtedness, I, I just find the media reporting on this by newspaper after newspaper, by CBC, by everybody, to be just bordering on, on dishonest. Anyone who looks at StatsCan's National Household Balance Sheet, published every 90 days, forever and ever, will know, and I've got the freshest, most recent data, the gross wealth of households, excluding corporations, excluding governments, is right now as we speak, $14 trillion. Our debt, our famous personal and mortgage debt, is $2 trillion. Our net worth is $12 trillion. Now, most people listening will say, I don't have any idea what $12 trillion is. Neither do I, by the way. <laughs> Stats, Canada, Stats Canada conveniently produces the average net worth per human being in our country. $350,000 net worth per person. Now, I show these stats, these graphs to my students. They say, wait a minute. I'm not worth $350,000. i am a 22-year-old student in the BCom. And my answer is always the same. Of course not. This is an average. So if you're worth far less than that, then there's other older people like me that's worth a lot more than that. 
But that's just the life cycle. You start out when you're young, you don't have any money, you go deeply into debt, you know, and then over time your income goes up, you pay down your debts, your wealth goes up, but the net average net worth in Canada is 350000 Another metric, you may be aware of that, I'm sure you are if you're in real estate, and this is from CMAC and Stats Canada. It's last year's data, and I don't believe it's changed significantly. 45% of all homeowners in Canada are mortgage debt-free. So when people, you know, wax prolific about, oh, my God, we're going to have a housing crash. It's going to ruin everybody and everything. Well, first off, the bank cannot foreclose and take back your house if you don't owe them any money. And almost half of all Canadians that own a house, 70% of Canadians own a home. Almost half of them don't owe anything. Secondly, we've got this enormous net worth. Okay, a lot of it's real estate. It doesn't matter. I mean, the real estate's not, nobody's suggesting it's going to go down by 50%. Or, you know, or some astronomical number. And so where I'm going with this is I am not suggesting there's no risk in the market. The risk is what it was 40 years ago when I was lending as a mortgage manager. It's the same old, same old, same old. Who's at risk? Young people starting out who buy their first home and they borrow up to their eyeballs, just like I did when I was 25 and I bought my first home. You borrow up as much as you can. You max out as much as you can. And if you're in a expensive city like Vancouver or GTA or now increasingly Ottawa and some cities like that, well, then you, those young people who bought in the last five to seven years, are going to have enormous mortgages to buy that expensive house. So that's the, the, the group, the segment of Canada that's at risk. The idea that a 55 or a 75-year-old person in Moncton, New Brunswick, who bought his house 45 years ago and paid it off 20 years ago, is at risk from this whole, quote, crisis, end quote, just simply is not evidence-based. They don't understand the numbers. I come back to almost half of all Canadians don't own a mortgage. If you don't owe money on a mortgage, the bank cannot foreclose on you. So who's at risk? Again, I'm repeating myself just to get this point across quickly. It's people who bought in the last five to seven years, and they're mortgaged up to the tilt, and they're in a high-cost high city like GTA, like Vancouver. I, you can go out to eastern Ontario, well, pre-COVID, <laughs> before this huge run-up right now. Even a year and a half ago, you could buy in any of these valley towns, eastern Ontario in the valleys, the St. Lawrence Seaway Valley. You could buy a house for $200,000, not in Ottawa. You could buy these in small towns down the Seaway, you know, Prescott, Ontario, and Cardinal, United Empire Loyalist Country. And, and so my point is, you go into rural Nova Scotia, you go into rural New Brunswick, you go into rural Newfoundland, you can get houses dirt cheap. And, and so my point is, we can't aggregate just because there is a, a, a crisis in Vancouver or GTA because of uh, irresponsible municipal councillors, and I do use that word very carefully. It is simply irresponsible of them to do what they've been doing it's, it, and, 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 and discriminating against our young people and our immigrants. But it is not a, a Canadian problem, meaning by that it's not an all-pan-Canadian problem. You can go into rural parts of Canada and there's no crisis. You can go into the smaller cities and there's no crisis. Thunder Bay, my brother lives in Thunder Bay, 100,000 people. So it's very much a big city problem where the councils have acted, the councillors have acted irresponsibly to radically restrict the supply, which has created enormous shortages and driven the prices through the roof, driving people further into debt to in order to be able to buy that home. And so that's, we have to be much more precise about this alleged crisis that it's not affecting 
every Canadian. And there's, there's a lot of Canadians who are not affected by it. It's really young people in the most expensive cities in our country who have bought in the last five to seven years. Right, right. Ian, can we talk a little bit about inflation? And just for our listeners, uh, sure. what, what is it? What are the factors leading up to it? And, and are you worried about the current state of, of where inflation might be heading? I am. And, um, and I want to, first off, fully acknowledge because there's some very respectable and, and very intelligent people at the Bank of Canada, uh, former Governor Polaz, who I've met a couple of times at professional events in downtown Ottawa, very, very capable individual, very smart guy. The current governor, very smart guy. And, and, and it's an article of faith amongst the elites in Ottawa, and I mean by the elites, I'm not using that term loosely, the senior decision makers in the government of Canada, that inflation is just not a problem, and interest rates are going to remain low forever. Uh, when I say forever, for the foreseeable future. I accept that today, I don't believe there's a risk of inflation today, if we mean today, 2021. I don't think interest rates are going to go up in 2021. Do I believe, though, that in the relatively near future, maybe in two or three years from now, it we are going to be facing that? Yes, I do believe that. And I believe it for a couple of reasons. And it's not just a whim or a prejudice on my part. Milton Friedman, a very, very famous professor at the University of Chicago, uh, won a Nobel Prize in economics. And he won his Nobel Prize in part for his magnum opus work study of 2,000 years of economics of major countries, not just not Canada, not the U.S., many, many countries. And what he found was, and he argued, that whenever countries, whether they're democratic or military juntas or communists, doesn't matter, when they run and become deeply, deeply indebted, they have turned to the same solution everywhere. The central bank, under the instructions or guidance or command of the government, the crown, the king, the prime minister, the president, deliberately inflates the money supply in order to repay the gargantuan debt of the day with inflated money. And he won a Nobel Prize, and his works are still studied and are still in print. If you want somebody a little more recent, uh, there's an 80-year-old retired professor emeritus from London School of Economics. I'll give you his name in a moment. I'm getting old, so I keep forgetting his name. I've actually met him once at Carleton uh, two year, uh, sorry, 10 years ago. He came to Carleton to a conference. Uh, uh, oh, gosh. It's going to come to me. Just bear with me. And he has a new book out. And uh, he's, uh, he's uh, been in the media quite a bit. And his argument is, it's a very clever, economically grounded argument. He was a professor for many, many years at LSE. And before that, he had a 30-year career at the Bank of England advising the governor of the Bank of England. So he's very high up. And he argued that the last 15 to 20 years of unprecedentedly low interest rates, never before experienced in human history, he said there was a reason for it. There were drivers, logical, causal drivers. One was the boomers were in their peak earning years around the world. This is not a British theory or an American theory. This is a global theory of interest rates. And he said there were two things that happened in the 90s. The boomers, hundreds of millions of boomers around the world, even probably more than that because the world population is 7 billion, um, they were in their peak earning years and they were paying down their debts and generating huge amounts of savings. And at the same time, two catastrophic or cataclysmic events occurred. The Soviet Union collapsed. 
China joined the world economy, as did the former Soviet Union, and you had hundreds of millions of new workers willing to work for low wages. And that kept inflation in check, and it created a savings glut because of the boomers. He argues that 25-year, 30-year trend is now over. It has ended. And he argues the boomers everywhere are going into retirement, and there's massive empirical data by central banks, by statistical authorities, showing that when you go into your senior years, you start to do something that economists call dis-saving, which is a big, fancy, pompous academic word for saying you start spending your savings. Because when you're in retirement, you want to travel around the world, you want to go on those really fancy cruise ships, and, and, and of course, you go into uh, long-term care homes, and they're frightfully, frightfully expensive. So he argues that the boomers are going to start reversing their accumulation of huge savings, and we're going to go from a global savings glut, and that was his word. We're going to go to a global savings shortage, driven by the boomers starting to spend their savings, and by governments around the world because of the 2008-9 crisis and now the COVID crisis, borrowing gargantuan amounts of money. So the demand side for credit is going to go through the roof, and the saving side is going to decline precipitously. So that's why we're going from a glut to a shortage. And he argues that's going to cause interest rates to go up, and he's arguing that it's going to cause a pressure on inflation because you don't have hundreds of millions of consumers any longer uh, willing to work, um, you know, compete for, with everyone else to drive down wages. In fact, the opposite, and there's been many studies on this, one of the side effects or consequences, one of the multiple consequences of the aging of Western societies, including Canada, the U.S., all of Europe, and so forth, and China's aging very rapidly too, is it's going to create shortages of labor. And this has been predicted by many, many different economists. The Finance Department of Canada put out a study about four years ago making this prediction. And when you have shortages of workers, that's going to drive up wages. And that's going to feed into inflation. So there's a lot of drivers that we're looking at. I don't believe that tomorrow morning when you pick up the paper, you're going to say, oh, my goodness, the inflation dropped to 5 or 10%. It's not going to happen while we're in the, these COVID times because that's dampening everything. It's, it's acting as a brake on the, on the engine. But as we pull out and we go forward over the next two, three, four, five years, and I don't mean the day after we get out of COVID, whenever that day is, but over the next two, three, four, five years, I don't mean 10 or 50 years. I'm not talking 100 years. And in three or four or five years, I think we're going to see interest rates go up. Um, this professor whose name is going to come to me, if I can remember it, and I promise you I will, um, he has said within five years, he's suggesting interest rates in the 5% range. Now, 5% is not that bad. I lived through, as a mortgage manager in 1980, interest rates of 20%, two followed by a zero. Well, 5% is pretty modest compared to 20%, but compared to what we are living compared through right one and now, a half percent, it's, it's just <laughs> scandalously uh, uh, unbelievable. And so, again, I, for those, I, I've said to my friends, if you have a mortgage, uh, it's fine to ride the you know the wave on the variable mortgage, but I said when you start to see rates moving up, I would lock in for five years. And I'm not a licensed financial analyst. I'm just telling you my own uh, interpretation, my own uh, view of, of of what's going on in the markets and where we're going to be going on that. 
Right. So the next question, which you've kind of covered, is kind of timelines for this. So this is not 10, 15, 20 years. We're talking within five years, you're, you're seeing interest rates rising fairly dramatically because of inflation. Uh, I, I think so. Charles, by the way, and so people at home listening can look him up. Uh, he's on YouTube. You can go and listen to him. He's given papers, uh, uh, presentation speeches on YouTube. His name is Charles Goodhart. He's your classical Oxbridge professor. Oxbridge, you know, he, I was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. He's an economist. Right. And he was an economist at the London School of Economics for many years. He has a brand new book out talking about what I just explained in a few sentences and why rates and, and inflation are going to go up. He's a very distinguished individual. Charles Goodhart, very British. And if you Google YouTube, you'll see he's given a couple of speeches in December and in January and February. He's 80 years old, sharp as a tack, sharp as a tack. And he's predicting that they're going to go up. Now, not, not you know, I know there's been op-eds out there in some places like Zero Hedge talking about hyperinflation from the Weimar years in the 1920s. I'm not, I'm not, certainly not in that camp. But even if rates, as I've said, even if rates go from, you know, one quarter of 1% now to 5%, that is still a huge increase right. uh, for those who are carrying a 300 or 500 or $800,000 mortgage. Right. Now, right. I was, just very quickly, I, when I went through and lived through, and I lived through it, the, um, the, um, the late 70s, when inflation was going up year after year, and all kinds of pundits, including the governor at the time, said, don't worry, inflation, we've got it under control, and interest rates are not going to go higher. And then they went from 8, they went to 10. I bought in. I bought my mortgage. I bought my house with a ten percent mortgage. Then they went up to, and I took a five year locked in. Then they went to twelve, and all the pundits saying, "Okay, that's it. They peaked at twelve now. They can't go higher." Then they went to thirteen. Then they went to fourteen. People said, "No, no, that's it. We've we've hit the peak, and they're not going up anymore." Then they went up to sixteen. Then they went to seventeen, and then people finally stopped predicting where they were going to go. Interest rates peaked at twenty. I'm not trying to suggest to you that I think that's going to happen. What I am suggesting to you to connect the dots so everybody understands what I'm saying is when the prime minister, and I'm not picking on him, he's just that he is the prime minister, and when the minister of finance said, oh, interest rates are going to remain low as far as the eye can see, I beg to differ. When, when, when the pundits and the experts are saying interest rates can't go up, that to me is probably a signal they're going to go up. There was a famous economist who was the chief economist to Richard Nixon in the White House. And um, he's, um, he coined this famous phrase, if something uh, can't go on forever, it won't. <laughs> if low interest rates can't go on forever, they won't. Right, right. <laughs> well, 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 one thing that seems interesting here is, again, thinking about what we just talked about in relation to housing prices and the housing market, we started the conversation kind of outlining what seemed like a fairly, and I, I don't want to misquote you here, but a, a fairly rosy, hey, you know, we're over time, housing prices go up, there's high levels of immigration, they're going to increase, there's uh, right. municipal governments that stifle supply. And now we're seeing potentially rising interest rates that are quite dramatic, even if we're talking right. 5%. Yeah. What, what do you think this means for, for the housing market uh, in, in bigger cities? I know. I understand your question. And believe me, I talk about this all the time. I talk about it in the local media here. And I, I'm just going to, and I, I'm, I'm loath to make a hard prediction for the future. What I like to do is draw on my past experience. When I was at the Bank of Montreal in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and rates were going up, 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 
all kinds of people, believe me, when the rates started to hit 12, 13, I'm talking mortgage rates, were hitting 12, 13, 14. There were huge numbers of people who were saying, that's it, we're doomed. The market's going to crash, crash and burn. We're going to see mass foreclosures everywhere, massive delinquency. And believe me, people were saying this in the Financial Post and the Globe and Mail. And there were people predicting and saying, doom, gloom. I looked up the data, okay, because the Bank Act uh, requires the banks to report their delinquency and it gets aggregated and it's been reported since before I was a mortgage manager. In 1980, when interest rates hit 20%, the national mortgage delinquency rate went from one half of 1% and it went all the way up to 1%. That meant 99% of people with mortgages continued to pay on time. I had customers coming in, I remember it vividly to this day, coming in and they'd lost their job, husband and wife had both lost their jobs, and they were coming in and making the mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I said, listen, I'm very, I, I really appreciate this, thank you very much. Uh, we really uh, admire and respect and honor your, 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 uh, your integrity and your diligence in paying it, but I said, if you don't mind me asking, how are you able to make the mortgage payment. And they would tell me, well, my parents are helping me. And I coined a phrase, and I want to take credit for it on this blog, on this little podcast. I coined a phrase way back in 1980, and I used it over and over and over, the bank of mom and dad. And when I became a professor in 1988, and I started talking and, and uh, about mortgages and banking and so forth, I used it in the media. I've been using that phrase all the way back to 1980. One cannot... Under, this is not a normal market in the sense of gold or silver or molybdenum or, I don't know, pork belly futures or, or the price of wheat or the price of oil. This is a very unique market because, as I like to tell people, and it's so obvious, but we forget this, it's the only investment market in the world that I know of that you can sleep in. I cannot, if I buy Bitcoin, I can't sleep in my Bitcoin. I cannot sleep in my gold or my plutonium or my bolybdenum or my steel or my oil, West Texas Intermediate. You can't sleep inside your barrel of oil. You can sleep in your house, and, and, and it's, it's where you raise your family. And secondly, because going back to the Stats Canada National Household Balance Sheet, we have $12 trillion of net worth in the country, personal wealth. I'm not talking corporate or government. Right. And that's the bank of mom and dad. And we've talked a lot about generational wealth transfer. And I guess that's one of the, the, the X factors here. I can see why you don't want to put your neck too far out. Well, I'm not saying that the prices are, are not overvalued. I don't want to leave you with the idea that they're that I think, oh, they're just hunky-dory at these prices. I mean, I marvel at these prices too, believe me. And I just, I mean, they're just mind-boggling. I understand that. But what I'm just throwing out to you and your listeners is it's very difficult. You know, you see gold going up through the roof and you see people say, well, it's going to crash. Okay, I get that. Oil goes way, way up to 200 a barrel or something. You know it's going to come back down. Okay, so I get that sort of thing. But this is a very unusual market because behind every young person that is potentially in trouble, not behind every one of them, but many of them, is the bank of mom and dad. Mm-hmm. of Canadians own their homes. And the older ones, like me, are sitting with an awful lot of equity in their house. 
I, I'm, this is, I'm getting anecdotal now just for a moment. In the last year, I've known about 10 different people, young people that have bought homes in Ottawa, in the Ottawa area. And I don't mean a hundred, there's no such thing as a hundred thousand dollar home. You know, these are seven, eight hundred thousand dollar homes and they're 25, 28 years old. So I, cause I know them well enough. And I said, okay, where did you get the down payment to qualify? Right. Oh, mom and dad. Thank mom and dad gave me the down payment or my grandmother. And, and so my point is, is, is that it's what really messes up the ability to predict whether the market's going to crash is that backing these people are their parents and their family. And, and my joke, and I, it's a serious joke, and I mean it as a serious joke. I used to say but way back in 1980, Canadians are so emotionally and deeply attached to their house that they will go rob a bank to get the money to then go to the bank to make their mortgage payment. Now, I'm being facetious, but I'm trying to get across an idea. Canadians will do unbelievable things to make sure they make their mortgage payment. Right, and I think that's uh, that's one of the differences we've kind of talked about on the on the podcast previously in relation to the United States, for instance, and, and even deferrals during COVID, right? None of that sort of everybody... And the economy kind of played out differently than a lot of people thought, but yes. you know, that wasn't the issue a lot of people forecasted. One more quick metric for your for you and your listeners. I just looked it up yesterday morning. The national mortgage delinquency rate in Canada, February twenty twenty one. So well into COVID. Actually it's March, sorry, March twenty twenty one. One fifth of one percent. That's point two. 0.2% of mortgages in Canada are delinquent. And that's after a year of COVID. So for those who are saying, oh, we're on the edge of the cliff and there's massive numbers of mortgage failures about to happen, um, I, I, I don't see it happening because for every person who does get into trouble who doesn't have a bank of mom and dad, because not everybody has a bank of mom and dad, well, then what do you do if you run into trouble and you can't make the mortgage? Sell it. And there's such a shortage of houses, courtesy of our municipal councillors, that you know you'll be able to sell it with 10 or 20 bidders on the house, and it'll take you out. And that's the word I used to use in banking, the takeout. The takeout will be selling the house. You bought it two years ago. It's probably gone up two or 300000 in value. You will sell the house, take out the mortgage, eliminate it, and make a capital gain to boot. <laughs> Maybe as a final question, Ian, where, in your opinion, are the safest places that Canadians can put their money in today's economic environment? You know, you've asked, I think, and I really mean this, you've asked, I think, the most profound question of all about real estate. We tend to look at it in, uh, the pundits and the analysts look at it in isolation. And they say, gee whiz, the prices are so high. But they're not saying, okay, what's my alternatives? And this is what I teach in the strategy capstone course for years. I'm saying, okay, when you're looking at a particular investment, it's not just how well is that investment doing, whether it's gold or silver, or it doesn't matter. It's how well is it doing relative to other asset classes? And, the, and then it brings us back to the other question is, well, can you live in your Bitcoin? Can you live in your gold bullion? And this is the confounding set of variables with real estate. That, uh, as opposed to any other investment. And so uh, my point being that I, I think that when I, when I look at that, uh, I'll get, tell you, uh, let me be fully d- full disclosure with you. If you said to me, you didn't, but I'll tell you, if you said to me, well, have you invested your money, Ian Lee, in any other asset class? And the answer is 
No. I could. I could. I, my house is free and clear. I'm sitting on a pile of equity. I've owned it for 33 years. And I could borrow against it and put money into Bitcoin or gold or name your asset class. I've chosen not to. It's not that I'm saying you can't make money in the stock market. I, it, the risk for me, because I'm older and I'm conservative, is too great. And if you're young and you're willing to lose money, great. But if you're not willing to lose money, and I'm just too conservative because I guess I'm older, I'm not willing to put it in another asset class. And, and there's an awful lot of Canadians who think like I do. Who think that, well, you know, if I'm going to put my money into anything, I'm going to put it into real estate because at least I can live in it. And there's a shortage of it, of, of housing. And the country's growing, some Canadians know this, is growing by a million people every three years, which is going to continue to drive demand for more housing. Do you see, and I know Adam said the final question, but do you see with inflationary pressure, I guess I'm just um, a little bit unclear on, on, and again, it's forecasting, but with inflationary pressure in Canada and interest rate increases, mm-hmm. if you're excited by real estate as an investment or even just as a, buying a primary residence, right. how, how do those two things interact on the housing market? Well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, and I should have brought that up before, and I just simply forgot. Uh, anyone who goes to Home Depot or Rona or Lowe's or any lumber, independent lumber yard, uh, as I do, because I still, you know, I do little renovations here and there. I've been serially renovating my house for 33 years, literally, because it was a 100-year-old house that needed an awful lot of renovation when I bought it. Yeah. But um, if you if you go into there, you'll know, uh, or you study it as I do by looking at the Chicago Commodity Exchange or looking at the stories in the Wall Street Journal, you'll know that lumber prices have just simply gone through the roof. In fact, I have a great graph that's showing in one year they've gone up 300% for using two by fours as your benchmark baseline. Um, it's gone from over 300 a board foot to over a thousand a board foot. And uh, I was uh, watching an interview with the CEO of the lumber association of the firms that do this. And he said, it's going to go back down post COVID, but it's not going to go back down to what it was. And we're seeing this. Um, my partner owns her own house and she's been renovating it. Pretty big renovations. And she said, it doesn't matter what product you're looking at. Tiles, Two by fours, everything is is gone gone up very dramatically, and that's feeding into the price of the houses. And it, you know, if you're building a new house, it's going to affect the price of new houses. It has to. Um, so not only do we have the uh, socially engineered shortage caused by municipal councilors in certain cities, but now we have the commodity shortages and commodity inflation in building supplies that's going to put upward pressure on home prices. So I don't, you know, when you step back and, you know, sort of set all the emotion aside and say, what are the drivers? They're going to drive the market down and cause it to crash. And I'm looking for it and I, I can't, and I'm very analytical. I'm saying, okay, there's, if there are forces, we should be able to identify them. Such as, you know, if we were depopulating like China's doing, like France is doing, like Italy is doing, they are actually shrinking over time. They're contracting. Um, are we shrinking? No. <laughs> We're growing a million people every three years. And the raw material to build houses is going up, not down. And we have a government in Ottawa that's making it, because of the, the legislation they passed on the environment, multiple pieces of legislation, it's making it much more costly for the uh, natural resource companies to extract timber, uh, to cut down trees. Mm-hmm. 
and so forth. And so these restrictions, not just the carbon tax on the movement of the stuff, putting it on a railroad or a truck, but the very severe restrictions on the natural resource companies, such as out in BC, are yet again going to put upward pressure, not downward pressure, on all the critical commodities that you use to build houses. So you've got a carbon tax that's going to be work its way through the supply chain because of you know, all these industries use fossil fuels, they use gas, natural gas, they use oil. And then you have the environmental legislation that was passed that's making it much tougher on natural resource companies and timber companies. And all of this is going to drive the cost of the inputs up, not down. Mm -hmm. So immigration is driving the population up. Municipal councils are restricting the supply. And the commodities used to build houses are going up in price. So those are the drivers forcing prices up. And I don't see a countervailing force that's driving it down. Well, maybe we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Ian, for obviously a very insightful conversation. Yeah, uh, and, and Ian, how can p- people find out more about what you're up to and, and your writing? Where, where's the best place sure. to follow um, you? I'm on, um, I've just agreed literally this morning uh, to appear on BNN Bloomberg TV every Thursday at 1 or 1.15 p.m. with Amanda Lang. So if they Google Amanda Lang, uh, and she's created this little segment for just her and I called The Debrief. So I'm going to be on a segment called The Debrief on BNM Bloomberg TV every Thursday, typically at 1.15. Uh, in addition, I am on Sirius National Radio every Wednesday at 11.45 with Matt Gurney. And every Thursday on Sirius National Radio at 8.35 with Arlene Bynan, who is a national journalist out of Toronto. So is Matt Gurney. He's out of Toronto as well. And finally, so these are the regular ones I'm on. I'm on every Tuesday morning on 13.10 Ottawa Talk Radio. It's owned by Rogers Network. And I'm on at 9.30 to 10 a.m. on the Rob Snow Show. And we talk about these exact sorts of issues that three of us have just been talking about. Currency exchange, you know, is the dollar going up? Is it going down? Where are the oil prices going? Where are house prices going? In fact, on each of these programs, we're talking about these kinds of issues that you, the three of us have been talking about today. In other words, there's a mix of public policy and, and private. In other words, house prices and what government's going to do and is there going to be an increase in the GST, HST in the next budget on April the 19th, stuff like that. So those are the four shows I'm on regularly and then I'm on ad hoc on other shows as well, other radio programs as well and television as well. I'm on CTV News Channel roughly every second weekend, but no set time. Right. Well, it sounds like you're a busy guy, and uh, we appreciate your time, that's for sure. And uh, we've we've been watching you, especially on BNN. So uh, thank you so much for your time, and we'll uh, hopefully have you on in the future if you have the time. I would uh, love to. And uh, one more time, just so everyone, so you won't get attacked uh, by anybody, I do not consult <laughs> to anybody. I have no financial interest. I have zero conflict of interest. My salary is from Carleton University, and the dean leaves me alone and doesn't tell me what to say or think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ian. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.
have it, folks, our discussion with Ian Lee, Associate Professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. Really enjoyed that conversation with Ian Lee, Matt. And if your head is not spinning when you're thinking about this market right now, so many things to consider in such a slippery conversation because, you know, just thinking about the market right now, the housing market is on fire right across the country. That's right. We've got some policy changes in near sight. Right, like the stress test uh, happening, potentially something coming along at the federal level. A lot of, lot of chatter. A lot of chatter at the federal level. Um, as we just talked about, inflationary period, potentially. Cost of build skyrocketing right now. What else we got? Local politics, supply issues, interest rates potentially increasing to 5% within five years. Um it's an interesting moment. There's yeah. there's no two ways about that. And unfortunately, we're out of time, so I'm not going to give my take. Uh, but uh, stay, stay tuned. tuned for next week. Yeah, yeah stay that's tuned. Adam's takes coming. But but what else do we got before we cut for the day? Yeah, what else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is where all things real estate live online. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com to sign up for things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer with stats. Uh, sub-market stats, stats that no one else has, stats before anyone else. We also have deal of the month. We have our episode guide. We have all sorts of resources. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. That's at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have private client services. And Matt, if you're not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information for free at your fingertips know how the market is going, know where the market is moving, and, and know what your neighbors are selling for. It's I was the best say, resource out there. This is one thing that I think Ian would agree with. Uh, everything is sub-market specific. Yes. And uh, at the end of the day, we can worry about what inflation is going to do in 2023. But if you want to know what your neighbor's selling for this week, PCS is the best research tool out there. For sure. That is for sure. And other than that, Adam... I think, I think we're pretty much done for the day. I w- I'm just going to put out a, something into the universe here. Ian Lee should write a book, I think. Ian Lee I should think write a book. And about sh- about his, uh, his ties to the Canadian political scene, I think. I think uh, I, that's what I was thinking. Ian Lee would be a great dinner guest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, but also throughout the years. Like, I'd love to hear, you know, I bet the gossip that he had in 78, 82 about the deputy finance minister or whoever at the time, yeah. uh, just being in his position, I can imagine dinner parties would be, uh, would, there'd be some good stories going around. Yeah. And some interesting views about real estate, but no uh, kidding. it was a, uh, it was a great conversation. No kidding. Adam, last but not least, we have a couple new listings, people taking advantage of those incentives, right? Some beautiful view units in North Van and along False Creek. Yes. Um, really great stuff. If you're, if you're interested in potentially selling this spring, do get in touch. We do have the sold plan and a lot of people getting in touch about Kelowna. Yes, for Man, sure. Man, tons of people getting in touch about Kelowna. Yeah, tons of people getting in touch about it's Kelowna. It's worth a conversation. And if you want to talk more about Kelowna, obviously this is not the market that we work in. We're Vancouver agents, but we do have a really great understanding of that market. So feel free. And we have a great team on the ground there. Yeah, we do. Yeah, feel free to get in touch. We'll give you our two cents worth on the market there and maybe have a 10-minute chat on where we would go. But if you are looking to buy in Kelowna, 
uh, do feel free to get in touch. We can definitely help you out with that. Give me a call at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And Matt, can't wait for next week because we have Byron Chard from Chard Development Incorporated on the program. Cannot wait for this one. It's a fantastic conversation. Have a good week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.